Right now, because of all of the different capacity constraints, 93% of builders are intentionally slowing their sales. And 40% of builders said their sales had slowed from April to May, and that data is as of today. But when you go into the comments, they all say, by design, by design, we're limiting capacity or we've completely stopped. And I think as we're trying to look at, well, is there gonna continue to be demand? You may start to see in the coming months, housing data actually doesn't look good and looks actually a little bit alarming, probably over the next four or five months. You have to understand kind of the nuances within the home building industry that when they are facing all of these struggles, they have to adjust their strategy accordingly too. And I think that's lost if you're not in the industry. Chris, I think that's your cold open, bro. I know. That's a great intro. That was great. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for tuning into The Fort. Today's episode is awesome. I have back with me Stinson Dean, but we have added Dustin Jalbert and Allie Wolf, and we have a fascinating discussion really around the theme of where do we go from here? What's going to happen next as it relates to the lumber industry, which has gotten a lot of news lately, and really housing. How how do how do they intertwine and how um, will we go forward from here? So we talk about kind of what's happened in lumber, uh, why we've seen prices go from $400 a board foot to almost $1,800 a board foot, which as we discussed in the last episode is equivalent to $14 unleaded gas. We talk about how builders, and home builders are digesting all this. We talk about what's going to happen if prices fall. We talk about more in depth in the industry, how lumber is produced, how it's sold, where risk is going to lie in the industry going forward. And it was really just a fascinating episode. Uh, I learned a ton. Obviously, housing is one of the main drivers of the American economy, so it's a big deal. Uh, COVID taught us that there's a lot of people that want to be buying new houses and remodel their houses. So we expect a lot of activity over the next couple of years. And again, I just learned so much. So thanks for continuing to join Join me, and I hope you enjoy this episode. All right. I am pumped to have Stinson, Dustin, and Allie with me today. This is the first uh, four-person that we've done, and the Lumber uh, episode was the second most listened to episode now of all time. Um, people really want to know about Lumber, which I don't know if that was exciting 10 years ago, but it sure as hell is right now. So let's just start by just kind of going around and everybody just giving a little bit about who you are and kind of what your um, where your career is right now and what you're what you're doing. Sure, I'll start. I'm Stinson Dean. I was on a, a pod with you earlier that kind of kickstarted. It was really good timing on your part, Chris, right before lumber became a meme stock, basically. You and I, uh, you and I got on and did a real deep dive into lumber. So, I, if for those who didn't listen to that, I'm a lumber trader. I buy and sell physical lumber. I hedge it with the futures market, um, and I sell to lumber yards. I don't sell to home builders, um, but uh, yeah, I try to make money buying low and selling high, effectively. Allie. Yeah, hi, I am Allie Wolf. I'm the chief economist for Zonda. And I would say, Stinson and Chris, there's nothing that hurts me more than being in second place. So we <laughs> got to try to get this one above your other one so we can be the, the most listened to. 
But um, we, Zonda is a housing data and consultancy firm, and we track the entire building life cycle from raw land all the way up to the closing out of new home communities. And in my role, I just have to make sense of what's going on in the market. Yep. Dustin? Great. Yeah, I'm Dustin Jalbert. I, I work as a business economist for Fast Markets. Uh, Fast Markets is a price reporting agency that uh, covers really the global commodities industry, everything from metals to uh, agricultural commodities to forest products. Um, and so I work uh, on the analytics side of our team. We have a price reporting business with, with editors and people who sort of go out and pull prices on the markets. Probably folks on, listening on the pod here probably heard of Random Lengths. That's a part of Fast Markets. So there, there are partners on the editorial side. But yeah, I work on the analytics side and I've been covering Softwood Lumber uh, for a few years now and been covering horse products in general as a business economist for a uh, better part of a decade now. So it's a little bit about me. And sounds like we've we've got certainly got a, a high threshold to jump here with the uh, second best pod of all time here. with, with yeah, good, good luck. Good <laughs> luck, guys. It wasn't lumber. It was me. In fact, <laughs> was a driving force behind that? So, yeah, so lumber is going nuts. Uh, it's actually the last couple of weeks started cooling down. It's, uh, you know, it hit, hit a high two weeks ago. But um, everybody here is coming from a different kind of um, experience and a different view of the world. So we'll kind of segment these into different topics and feel free to jump in. But let's just kind of get started with Housing Alley. What has lumber, this meteoric rise in lumber prices, and even where we stand today, like what is going on in the industry at a high level? Yeah, so high level, I'm sure everyone knows housing is just hot, 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 hot. We've heard every word thrown out, outrageous, frenzied, feverish, whatever it is, we're seeing that Builders had planned going into 2020 and 2021 that housing was going to be good. They didn't plan for it to be any of those words I just used. And so they're running into supply chain issues across the board, whether that's running out of lots, whether that's running out of laborers, whether that's um, just struggling to keep customers happy. Because if you can't get a tub in a house, customers are getting really upset too. So there are these frustrations on the, the housing market side where demand couldn't be better we're just running into hurdles after hurdles when it comes to the supply side landscape. And I'll finish with just the natural result is that prices are going up. And mostly that's because of the input costs. You hear that directly from the builders. Second to that, though, it's just that they're trying to limit demand because they can't keep up. Yep. And and how has lumber impacted kind of home building? Are, are builders just building with the new pricing or have a lot of the big boys kind of hedged or how are they able to kind of digest all this price movement? Well, it sounds like from our conversations, it's going completely back into the home price. So the builder gets the, the higher lumber costs. And right now, because inventory on the resale side is down 50% year over year, in some markets, it's even greater than that. People just want a home. And so if a builder goes back and says, hey, I'm going to raise prices, consumers are saying for now, okay, that's fine. Uh, there are, I think what we're calling the invisible price ceiling. We don't know when we hit that threshold where builders can no longer pass that on. And you can talk to some builders and they'll tell you they've already hit it. And other builders say they really see the runways about as, as far as you can see. So right now, the lumber side is just getting absorbed by the consumers. And do they kind of think that if lumber drops back down to kind of normalized levels and they've hit this new price ceiling, the margin's just going to expand again? Or do you think we'll see prices kind of follow uh, commodity prices? 
I don't see builders at all trying to adjust the prices back down. Yeah. So I do think margins will remain high, but we'll have to watch with what happens with interest rates because that, that of course, is then the third wild card that builders are trying to plan for as well. Ali, I'm curious. Sorry, Chris, can I pop in here? Always. Is there an area of the country or is there any regional trends where some builders have said, hey, we're not able to raise our prices, where other areas of the country they are? Is there any trend there or is it random? It's a great question. And I would say I, from my experience, I have not had any builder in any market say that they can't raise prices. Um, It does seem that right now the lowest price point is going up the most in terms of you know, if it was selling at 200, now it's selling at 350. And that's where we're hearing some cautiousness from the builder, but it's not that they don't have the buyers. I think what they're saying is we have people that can build this up and push these prices up today, but what about local incomes? Because at the end of the day, you're going to be dependent on these, these individuals who haven't seen their incomes go up to the same extent. And there's just some cautiousness about what that looks like. But right now I wouldn't say it's one region or one location over another. And you said re- resale inventory is down 50%? Ex- like, is that existing homes? That's a, yeah, that's existing home. We use realtor.com. It's my favorite data. They just publish it on a regular basis and by market, and it's free. So <laughs> I like that as the data source. But yeah, yeah down 50%. I, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, places like Jacksonville, Florida, and Riverside, San Bernardino, which are two of the hottest housing markets across the country right now, they're off closer to 70% year over year. Wow. Why won't people sell their homes? I don't get it. Because they get overpaid and then they go overpay somebody else. Yeah. And there's no homes to buy. What are you going to move into? Well, you build one, guys. You just build a new one. (laughs) True. No. And they refi too. So you locked in a 2.5% interest rate and now interest rates are three. That still impacts monthly payment because prices have gone up over the same period too. Dustin, let's, let's move to your court for a little bit. You know, we talked about this a little bit with Stinson on the prior, but you have a really unique insight into what's going on with Canada and the sawmills and everything. So what's kind of the state of the union with sawmills and what, from your perspective, caused this massive run up in prices outside of just a lot of home demand? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously right now, you know, you mentioned it, Chris, we're, we're kind of heading into another round of standoffs here between buyers and, and sawmills. Uh, we've hit a point where obviously, you know, the price for lumber is, is continued to soar, at least in the cash market. We've obviously seen some correction in the futures price, but cash is still creeping up. You know, we're talking, you know, based on at least what we report for the random lengths, you know, framing lumber composite price, we're up over $1,500 per thousand, but some framing, you know, lumber prices are 1600, 1700 per thousand, but, you know, momentum is slowing. And I think you've got a couple factors at play. You know, one, I think, you know, some of these disruptions in the supply chain are really starting to bite into sort of building activity. You know, the demand is there, but, you know, the supply chain, chain can't keep it. But, you know, one eight, one nine for, for housing starts, that's just that's just not going to be sustainable right now, at least from a lumber perspective. You know, there's there's some cooling there that you're seeing. Uh, the other thing you got to think about, too, is, you know, we're kind of heading into the seasonally sort of strong period from a demand perspective for lumber, right kind of into peak building season. Buyers are starting to see, you know, kind of a few months ahead now into, say, July. And, you know, demand starts to roll over there, too. So I think, you know, wholesalers, distributors are kind of seeing light at the end of the tunnel here that, OK, peak demand season is getting behind us. 
Um, so they're, they're kind of pulling back a little bit, hoping that maybe a correction's on the way. On the supply side, from a production perspective, you know, the industry data does show that we are seeing some improvements. Mill inventories are picking up some. And, you know, when inventories kind of hit closer to historical norms, that's when mills will be willing to start discounting their wood. We're not quite there yet, but I think we're getting close. You know, the shipment data, the high frequency data is showing improvements. Uh, so the supply side is improving, but the thing that's really challenging for the industry right now, both Canadian and, and U.S., is uh, labor continues to be a real constraint for the industry. Wood products employment in the U.S., uh, you know, as of, I think, April, is still down 2 to 3% from pre-COVID levels. We're, we're down in an employment perspective, but demand is up 5 10% year over year, or closer to 10% year over year. That's a big disconnect. Uh, mills can't add overtime or they are starting to add shifts uh, slowly, but it's it's a grind to get people back at the operations. So that is still a supply constraint right now. We are rebalancing. You know, I, I think you're going to start to see a little bit more power going to the distributor wholesaler, but it's it's still kind of, we're still kind of in a tenuous moment here where prices are going to go. So Chris, if I can jump into yep. uh, one thing on the labor front, I just wanted to make sure that we really hit on is the same things happening in residential construction. So we have, our jobs are actually up compared to pre-pandemic levels, but up 43,000. When you look at the year-over-year change, they're completely out of whack with how high have home prices, or sorry, home sales gone up compared to residential employment. But I think this is one of the most important numbers that I have heard. This came from uh, my friend is the chief economist at the National Association of Home Builders, and they've done this research. So in 2020, we hit 1.4 million total housing starts. And there are a lot of forecasts that say, hey, we're going to hit 1.7. So to go from 1.4 to 1.7, you need, by their calculations, 400,000 more workers to be able to build those homes. And if we think we can get 400,000 more workers, then great. Go ahead and say your forecast is 1.7. But if you think there's going to be constraints, and we're even hearing it on the, it sounds like Dustin from the mill side as well, I think that's one of the important considerations we have to play into the discussion. We're still constrained from a production perspective. And it's and it's like that across the manufacturing supply chain, right? It's not unique to, to wood products. It's not unique to, to residential construction. I think, you know, wood products, it's probably the most jarring because, you know, for so long, Lumber here has kind of been one of the hottest commodities on the planet, so it's, it's kind of weird to see employment down and demand up so much. Um, and also, you know, to go back to your original question too, Chris, about you know what's caused this pricing volatility. You know, what happened last year? Uh, mills thought the sky was falling in in April and May when we had twenty million people, over twenty million people on unemployment insurance. Whole sectors of the economy were closing. I think Stinson talked about this last time in your pod too, but Mills shut production in a big way. You know, in April alone last year uh, in 2020, you probably had 20 to 30 percent of the industry capacity in North America that was just curtailing, that was that stopped producing, and demand didn't move accordingly. <laughs> it went in the opposite <laughs> direction, and so we produced this massive hole in inventory and distribution. Now, wholesalers, distributors dumped their inventory. Mills weren't producing, so their inventories were they were selling out of inventory, and you know we think. Instead of starting 2021, you know, based on our estimates, uh, you know, you normally you start the year, you know, at a wholesale distributor level between say 45 to 60 days of supply of inventory in the ground. We probably started 2021 with 25 to 30 days of supply. 
And so that is very short considering, you know, this level shift in demand we've seen. And it's, it's a, there's other kind of longer term factors that play that we can talk about too. But in the short term, that's accounting for a huge portion of the volatility in the market we see right now. It's a, it's a huge factor. And, and from a trader's perspective, if you're a sawmill and you have very little inventory or for anyone, like if I have very little inventory, I'm very conservative on my pricing. Like if you're going to buy this from me, you're going to pay me a, a very, very high amount because I have nothing left. And once I sell it to you, I can't sell a little bit to someone else and split it up. And so that's how these, these mills, their mindset, like we don't have a bunch of inventory in the back that can fill holes or we need to move a bunch of 16 footers because we're overproduced. They just don't have that pressure. And so to sell, to have something to sell every day and what Ali said, the home builders were doing the same exact thing to limit demand. They just raise prices and there's only a few people who are willing to pay the higher price and they're they're the ones that are going to buy the few amount of houses or the few amount of rail cars that are available. So, it, you know, it's a, a beautiful, you know, free market and it's fun to watch. Yeah. And, and normally, too, like, you know, basic economics, right? The price goes up and we normally get a supply response, right? That's that's just sort of how markets work. And between the pandemic and some longer term factors, we you know, uh, we had we had a bunch of mills that closed in British Columbia in 2019. For market-related reason, reasons, prices were down, and there's there's a wood fiber shortage there from a from a log perspective. So I mean, this you know all these factors just prime the market. So there's just not incremental supply that can come in, and hence prices can kind of go anywhere in the short term. That's just that's we're kind of we're out of equilibrium. That's sort of what I've been telling clients. We're out of equilibrium. It's going to take time for that to resolve. And what we're seeing on the builder side too, a reaction to that is if you look at the new home sales figures, what we see is homes that are sold but not started is at the highest level since 2006. So for a long time, builders were just saying, I'm going to do dirt sales, I'm going to pivot, or I'm going to just continue to sell the lots because we want to strike while the iron's hot. Well, now builders, when we're talking to them, they're shifting away from dirt sales and they're saying, hey, you know, that's taking a lot of risk on our end because we don't know what the input costs are going to be. And so we now have builders that are pushing forward more with a spec model, which is what we've seen in the past, but builders just haven't been doing that as much where they're building the homes. And then once the drywall's in, then they have a good sense of how much their costs are. And then they're willing to sell it. For a consumer though, it takes away some of their optionality. You're not able to make as many changes as you initially would wanted to. And that's why you would have bought a dirt sale in the beginning. Right, yeah, like... Folks are just anecdotally in my world, if, if I'm going to pay this much for a house, I might as well get a new house that it's exactly how I want it to be. And that would limit some of your options. Would you say, Allie, that home builders, because it, it seems like you say the word spec home, it's like a four letter word. Like that's what got them all in trouble 12 years ago. Like, are they going to, putting supply constraints aside, do you see them building as fast in as many spec homes as they would pre-sale homes, dirt sales? So asking about the mix of them? Well, like if if someone's going to, um, it's just easier for a builder to have, a, have it pre-sold and then build it. Like they could be more aggressive and sell more homes, I, I would think, from a risk management perspective. But if they're not sure if there's going to be a buyer on the, on the, on the far end, do they, on the back end of building a spec home, do they build as many spec homes or do they throttle that back thinking, 
you know, the bottom come drop out at some point. So they're not, they're not as aggressively building because they don't have buyers locked in. I would say I'm not seeing that right now. I think that builders think if you build it, there will be someone. No questions asked. I'm not seeing much hesitancy. I, I think since we're, we would head that way, I think if we start to see more resale inventory, if the foreclosure moratorium falls through, if you start to see just some better equilibrium or a better match between supply and demand, I think builders will start to be more cautious. Right now, it's get it on the ground and you get it on the ground and you sell it and you sell it with a good margin and you're going to sell it quickly. And so they don't have an incentive to be limiting that for now. Do you have any data on how much demand is being pent or generated because people are leaving the New Yorks and the San Francisco's of the world and coming to the, you know, more spread out single family community type areas? Like how much of that is driving single family home buying? Is people rethinking how they want to live? So there's a whole bunch of mis different data sets that don't give you a singular number. So I can't tell you it's 30% because of that. But I can tell you the markets that are doing the best are the markets that have the most out-of-town buyers. The areas in different markets that are doing the best are the areas that are further away from the central business district. And the markets that are seeing the highest home price appreciation often overlap with the markets that have the most in-migration from higher cost areas, allowing them to drive prices up. So I think all of those should point to the conclusion of what you said is a lot of this is people are just shifting where they're living. They no longer have the tethers to the office the same way they have in the past. But I don't have a firm number to say, hey, it's it's 30 percent of the market that's doing this. Yep. Dustin, let's go. Let's talk a little bit more on the sawmills. Are they printing money right now, even with lower labor? Because there's huge margin. Like who's making all this money and what incentives do they have to go back to full capacity? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the mills are making, you know, money hand over fist right now, cash hand over fist. It, you know, I'm sure, you know, folks listening to the pod here probably followed some of the builders sort of uh, their latest sort of earnings calls. You know, a lot of them sort of making record returns, you know, record quarters in terms of their earnings. You know, mills are very profitable right now, even high cost mills. So, you know, just for the listeners, you know, your, your high cost lumber producing regions in North America are, you know, generally British Columbia, which, you know, part of that is, is log availability issues. Your biggest cost, you know, your cash costs for production are your logs. You know, that's anywhere from 50 to 70% of production costs. Uh, and then on top of that, Canadian producers have a duty, you know, right now it's 9%. I know there was a recent announcement that the preliminary sort of level will be set to 18%, but that's still to be determined. But there's that as well. Um, and then the Pacific Northwest and the U.S. too is high cost. And, you know, that range for, for the, the industry right now, and this is not factoring labor productivity issues, but just generally, you know, high end of the cost curve is probably somewhere between $450 to $600 per thousand board feet. With lumber at, you know, two by fours at $1,500, $1,600, $1,700 per thousand, that's a huge cash margin even for high cost producers. Where and those are those high cost producers have log constraints to some degree. When you go to the south, um, there are not log constraints. You know, there's, there was a good I think Wall Street Journal article about this recently about how timberland values have been incredibly suppressed over the last decade or so as a fallout of the the housing crisis, uh, just because there's so much wood sitting on the stump. And those mills are making you know much much higher margins than those high cost mills. Uh, you know, break evens are probably you know, even on the high end, you know, $250, $350 per thousand board feet just for variable costs of production. 
I mean, that's a ton of cash generation in a short period of time, right? So these mills have had this sort of almost cash bonanza these these last couple quarters. Uh, and a lot of that's getting returned, you know, special dividends to shareholders, things like that. But some of that is getting reinvested in industry capacity and improvements, capex at the mills, things like that. So, and when I think about that, and uh, our our uncle Uncle Jeff Bezos always says, "Your margin is my opportunity," and and I hear that British Columbia shut down several sawmills. Are there a lot of barriers to entry for people to start opening up sawmills and getting back into the game? Or is it is it kind of like the mafia? It's kind of just a closed-knit world. How, how come more people aren't getting into this business? Well, I think so. Part of it is an industry psychology thing, right? Uh, so I think uh, I would say just as someone who's covered forest products, the, the, cap, the capital investment is, is not huge in the grand scheme. You're talking for a, a greenfield, state-of-the-art sawmill, you know, Probably right now it's on the higher end, so it's probably you know maybe 150 million dollars for you know. Say, Where? What's that? Where would that mill be at 150 dollars? 150 million. Uh, that would you know probably in the south. So that's where all the capex is going for the most part. But you know generally you know that's for a mill rated at say 200 you know 250 million board feet annually, which is a, a good size mill. You know I, I think from a a capital perspective, it, it's it's viable, but I think what's happened is the industry has been very careful about adding capacity over the last decade from this fallout of the global financial crisis. You saw, you know, about twenty percent of the industry capacity base got knocked out between two thousand five and two thousand nine when housing crashed, and they've been very conservative with their capacity investments since you know since say two thousand ten two thousand eleven. The North American capacity base has grown by about 1% a year, give or take. Uh, and some of that was out of necessity because demand was really low, operating rates were really low, and pr- the price of lumber was pretty cheap from a historical perspective. So a lot of mills were really suffering. So, you know, they, they've kind of managed the, you know, the CapEx and with the expectation that demand was probably g- g- going to grow maybe, you know, 3 4% a year, not this kind of level shift of you know, 10% overnight. So the industry, this caught the industry off guard. So I think from, from the, the perspective of adding capacity, it's certainly viable in a place like the South where there's timber availability. There are constraints when you start talking about material coming out of Canada or out of the Pacific Northwest where the, the log prices are higher. They're more what we'd say they're tensor log baskets. There's just not as much availability. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for that. Uh, and that's what, you know, deters some capex to some degree, and you know, frankly, uh, uncertainty around the the uh, the duty, the the lumber duty on Canadian mills as well. You know that has you know there's been a sort of round after round of softwood lumber agreements between the U.S. and Canada. Uh, there's no longer an agreement right now. It's just a, a combined sort of countervailing and anti-dumping duty that's that's been adjusted the last few years on Canadian mills. And so, you know, that does deter capacity investment. British Columbia probably wouldn't be adding much anyway because they have this mountain pine beetle kill that's that's decimated their timber basket. But in a place like Quebec or Ontario, where there is fiber availability, timber availability, you know, there, there's other challenges there, but you probably could see some capacity on the margin come in if there was, you know, sort of a stable duty that that everyone knew what to expect 10 years down the road. And that could attract capital investment. So, uh, what, what is the what is the log and tree situation in the U.S. Pacific Northwest? I, I don't know much about that. You're, you're saying it's tight. Like, what what are the how is that 
fundamental setup? So uh, part of the issue here is so it's, it's a couple things. So first, um, historically speaking, the Pacific Northwest is, used to be very dependent on federal and state lands for logging. In the 90s, there was this episode called the Spotted Owl, Owl Crisis, where the Spotted Owl, which was, I think it was deemed endangered, an endangered species. As a result of that, a lot of federal lands that were logged on were, were effectively cut off. And that had a huge impact that knocked out a lot of mills in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and so that's a very bitter issue with the industry, the U.S. industry in particular. And obviously, you know, the U.S. coalition and environmentalists sort of butt heads over this, right? And it's still an outstanding issue. But as a result of that, the, the timber available to, to sawmills and wood products mills, it's, it's mostly on private lands now. Uh, and that is, there's relative sort of concentration of land ownership uh, in the Pacific Northwest that just, just makes log availability really tight. There's also a pretty robust log export market to Asia too. So that's another source of demand. So when you look at globally, usually when lumber prices go up or wood products prices go up, usually log prices go up. And you see that in the Pacific Northwest. You see that in Canada. Canada's a little different. It's it's kind of a managed system because it's on crown land. Um, in the South, you, you don't have that connection right now because there's too much timber sitting on the stump that's mature. So and the reason I ask is as a as a trader, I largely can substitute Pacific Northwest species, Engelman spruce, ponderosa pine, hemfir, for Canadian spruce for single family homes. And if we can get more Pacific Northwest lumber cut and sent, uh, that'll alleviate the pinch coming out of Canada, because the argument I've made for a few months now is we just don't build homes out of Southern Yellow Pine. I, I don't know. I certainly, I guess it could be possible, but right now we won't have to change a thing in how we build homes if we can get more Ponderosa Pine out of Idaho sent, you know, to Atlanta. So I, I, I've been curious about the the logging situation up there, and you're saying that because the spotted owl story from traders who mentored me, it's like infamous. It's before 2018, that was the high price. It's this, this crazy spike because the, the Clinton administration shut down all logging in these federal lands to protect this, uh, this owl. And are you saying like that decision from the 90s is still what is limiting logging on federal lands? Well, I mean, it's it's a factor, right? Um, you know, I think that the Trump administration before uh, before uh, sort of his administration was up, I, I think he did uh, announce that, I, mean, I, I don't want to quote the exact amount of acreage, but there's this substantial amount of land that could be opened up for logging purposes again. I think it's under review right now uh, under the Biden administration. So I don't know what, you know, I don't know what the outcome of that will be. Obviously, there's there's clearly, uh, you know, some politics there in terms of, you know, there's an environmentalist contingent that probably doesn't want to see that open up right well, that that is that is the easiest way for us. I mean, I say that you got to. I don't know if we have the capacity. The capacity probably matches the log supply. So if we open up more logging, I, I don't know if the mills well, are, are at, at capacity to so cut more. That there's the potential there, right? I mean, I think there's there's a cost benefit analysis that you know policymakers, environmentalists, the industry's got to make there. You know, I I would say though, you know, when going back to the southern yellow pine thing. The industry is finding a way to use the material. And I think for, for listeners, what's important to keep in mind 
a good chunk of southern yellow pine, probably a little over half of it, is used in treated applications. It's a, it, southern yellow pine, it's like a sponge. It absorbs treating chemicals. It makes a great treated material, which is obviously used for more exterior purposes, decking, you know, any sort of outdoor application, right? And that traditionally is, is where it's dominated. But over the years, they are finding more and more ways to use southern yellow pine. And it's gained share over time in terms of the U.S. market. And it's, it's become very big in trust manufacturing. It, it's, it's a fantastic material for that. Um, you know, there was a lot of lodgepole pine out of BC that was affected by the beetle kill that was used for what's called machine stress rated, rated lumber. And you use Southern Yellow Pines, a perfectly fine substitute for that. And that's great for trust manufacturing. So you are finding places that it is gaining share. And right now, while SPF availability is tight, you are hearing more and more about it. Southern Yellow Pine sort of going deeper into the Midwest, into the, the, the mountain states, uh, and certainly gaining share within, um, within the South. I think the issue with pine is as it moves through zones, it's susceptible because it is kind of sponge-like. It's susceptible to warp and twist with when you move through a zone and there's a change in humidity. Uh, so that's that is a challenge with it. But I think there is a lot of timber down there that needs to be used. And I think you know you look at the Canadian producers of SPF. They've gone and acquired a lot of mills in the south and made huge capital investments to improve the the quality of the stick coming out of those mills down there. And so they see. They see a future for pine, southern yellow pine in home building. So, well, D- Dustin, Dustin and I notoriously disagree on the future <laughs> of southern yellow pine, and I, I'm just going to go ahead and dig into it. Like the this, this it's interesting that it's it, it gets used for for trust manufacturing, and I would I'm making some assumptions, but it it, it gets cut at the mill, put on a truck, delivered to the trust manufacturer, so it's it's not sitting in the yard. It's, it's applied, you know, in a assembly line type style and it's effectively installed right away. And the, the pushback I've always heard is, you know, it can't, Southern Yellow Pine can't sit on the racks at the lumber yard. It can't sit on the job site. Like it has to get installed pretty quick because it starts changing its shape and it's, it's dense and heavy, which makes sense for trusses because they need the, the, the better span ratings. But, would you agree with the current iteration of Yellow Pine, you can't make stud walls with it on I mean, a production it's, scale? It's it's not a it's not a stud material like an SPF. But I think the one thing I would would counter with Stinson, you know, there's more and more housing construction that's happening in the South, right? You know, that's the epicenter of home building. It's in Florida. It's in it's in Texas. Obviously, California is big too. But for single family, I, I mean. Atlanta, Carolinas, Virginia. Right. I mean, it's 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 really it's super ironic that the baskets of the most abundant U.S. fiber is right in the middle of all the biggest single-family home markets, and we we don't use it to build homes. Well, I, again, I've challenged that a little bit. I mean, the, the material oh, is being, you two it break is it up. Used. I know it's getting heated here. So, <laughs> <laughs> so can I jump in? Can I ask a question? So this goes back to Chris's original question. So we're going to go full circle on this. So what I had heard recently is that there are two mills that are um, getting built right now, and they'll be built by the end of this year, and it'll take till the basically middle to end of 2022 for them to actually have, like, be coming online, going at at full capacity. 
And the number I had heard is that those would support 130,000 new single family housing starts. So my question is, when you're building up a new mill, does that number smell right to you? What's a number that you're looking at to be able to hit those? To me, 130,000 a year was such a low number for, I guess, what I had thought when we're trying to, to build more homes. So how does that stack up to what you've heard? Well, I mean, so there's 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 a lot of capex going in in the south. Um, you know, there's definitely a fair amount of greenfield mills. You know, when you're talking about uh, the mills coming into the market, they range from 200 to 300 million board feet a year in terms of the capacity. So, you know, those are pretty sizable capacity investments. And based on our tally, there's you know about a billion board feet a year being added uh, into the market in the south. Uh, so there is capacity coming, uh, and it is going to meet some of that need for construction. I know Stinson challenges me on that, but it is it is going to get used to some degree. There's going to have to be some reshuffling in terms of the material that's used to get those homes assembled. You know, I think a standard average size single family home, uh, you know, uses you know what about for at least for softwood lumber around you know fifteen thousand board feet, give or take fifteen sixteen thousand. I think depends on the source that you talk to. So you know, those, those mills can build a lot of homes. I do agree with Stinson, though, that you can't just use all Southern Yellow Pine to build a home. You need the SPF for the stud material, and you need Doug fir in some cases as a, as a preferred material, you know, for certain applications. So they're not perfect substitutes for each other. But when you think about it as a, from a holistic perspective, from North America as a whole, there's going to be some reshuffling of where material is going so that the SPF gets spread around for the, the you know, the optimal, you know, usage and where Southern Yellow Pine can be used for, you know, top plate, base plate material, trust manufacturing, you know, you're hearing it, you know, multifamily, you're hearing it used for panelized, you know, panelized construction. It's going to fill some gaps in the market that are, that is needed, but it is going to create growing pains for the industry. I, I don't disagree with that at all. I think it's taking time for people to adjust and use the material, but those, those mills will support you know, quite a bit of demand for homes here. Yeah, Ali, I did the math. If we did uh, 15,000 board feet into 250,000, uh, 250 million board feet production, it's about 16,000 homes per one mil brought on. And you it's, know, it, it's, yeah, I, is, I, guess, I guess, I guess, but not all 250 billion go into, you know, it's probably half or less. So, well, it's, they're, they're not all the materials going to be, you know, uh, the, 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 you know, high graded or the, the, um, it's not going to be necessarily framing grade material. There's industrial grade material that comes out, you know, when you, you, you cut a log, you know, they try to optimize this as much as possible to get the best value out of it. And usually that's for framing lumber or higher grade appearance grade applications for lumber. But, you know, sometimes you just, you just get a log that, is no good or you know it's just a lower grade material so it's going to be used for pallets or industrial packaging so at Stinson's point yeah not every stick of lumber from that mill can necessarily go to build a home but the type of state-of-the-art technology they're putting in at the mills in the south with you know the the laser technology for optimizing the log you know before it goes through the the gang saws or you know the sawing operations the auto grading that's being implemented, which is also a big way that they're mechanizing the process, you know, continuous drying kilns, all these things are, you know, making the product 
you know, compared to even t- say 10 years ago, the, the, the quality of the stick coming out of the South is much, much better on average than say 10, 20 years ago, when a lot of the material, again, was either, you know, you're talking treated material, again, for decking or exterior purposes or more industrial grade or something that would go offshore. So are you seeing those investments that you just lined out, those advancements of those across the board in Southern Lapine, or do you see the Canadian-owned ones moving first, or is it are they all keeping up with each other? I think there's, you know, the Canadian share is pretty high. Uh, I need to check. It's off the top of my head. It's either, the Canadians own about thirty to it's between thirty and forty percent of the the Southern Yellow Pine capacity, so they have a substantial share, and they've been incrementally, you know, through M and A and also greenfield investments you know, building out their, their share of that market because they know that's where the kind of the last game in town for, for saw timber is. They've been making pretty significant investments over the last decade, but there's there's kind of non-incumbents that are coming in too. Uh, you know, you have, for example, Idaho Forest Group, which is not a traditional Southern Yellow Pine producer. They're one of these greenfield mills that Ali was talking about. Um, they're coming in and building a Southern Yellow Pine mill. Uh, you have a company like Bure, which which they have an, an existing operation down south, but you know they're traditional Midwestern sawmill sort of business. And so you have new players coming in too and adding capacity. So you know the industry is convinced that there's a place to sort of fill the void for SPF and the lack of production that's going to come out of the Pacific Northwest. But I, you know. And users have got to figure it out too. You know, there's there's adaptation and changes that are going to have to happen from a builder perspective. Ali, have you heard? Have builders ever talked to you about Southern Yellow Pine versus Pacific Northwest dynamic? Have you like? Yeah, honestly, no. Um, Be a good question for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't. I don't have any insight on that. The only thing I wanted to add from the builder's perspective, what's become really frustrating to them is that they are getting robbed. People are coming on and stealing the lumber because people are so excited to have access to lumber. And so builders have tried to hire security. And um, for a while, I think the builders that got in early were able to protect it. But now what we're hearing is that the security companies have become smart to it, too. And now they're charging just these ridiculous prices to preserve the the lumber. So builders say that that's like a, a shocking cost to them when they're already facing all these supply chain issues. Um, they also said that another problem is they, they're going on, and maybe this is common knowledge, but they're, they're only getting, they're on allocation. So they can only get a certain number of packs. And they said like, when the packs show up early, the packs show up late, the packs get stolen. Well, then like, <laughs> you're stuffed or at least stuffed for a while. And then that's just causing additional headaches. That's causing uh, additional money. So all these different issues yeah. that are coming from that. Yeah, I think there's- yeah, we had some friends that are, they're engineered they're engineered I-beams. Nine of them got stolen. And it's one thing for the money, but it's also that screws up the entire schedule. Stinson posted a picture on Twitter the other day of him sitting outside with his family at a a 12-person wooden table. And I think I told him, (laughs) I'd go, when was last, or I didn't know you bought a billion-dollar table before. That's a 2021 (laughs) joke. I have a couple of dumb questions from a private equity perspective. Uh, Going back to the question is like, why do the Canadians control everything. It seems like from an opportunity perspective, private equity would be jumping into this industry like crazy. And then the second question, you know, Apple, if you think of Apple, they have all these trade secrets and patents. Do the Canadians hold some knowledge that the rest of the world just doesn't know about? Like I'm the dumb guy in Texas that just thinks, hey, we're cutting down trees and we're cutting them into like, you know, little shapes and we're shipping them across the country. Like, why is this 
industry not being <laughs> infiltrated and how why do the Canadians seem to have like a strong arm on this? I don't know if strong arm seems maybe a little bit little strong as okay. a statement. But I mean they look, I, I think the reason that they've been ahead of maybe not ahead of the curve, but they've been they've been proactive, let's say, is because again, especially the, the British Columbia based producers, they've known about this beetle kill situation for two decades now. This is something that this is a slow moving sort of uh, ecological disaster, basically, that in the early 2000s, they knew these these pine beetles were, were probably going to devastate their timber base where most of their assets were based. And, you know, they they said, look, you know, the, the reality here is that there's going to be too much demand for timber, not enough supply. So if we're going to continue to be sort of relevant in the market leaders in this industry, we've got to go find where that timber is. And so they've you know, they looked at the South and they've seen this glut of timber, especially in the fallout of the housing crisis and looking at what the returns of a two by four are down there to them. It's, they said, OK, well, this is this is where we're going to go next. And so, you know, I think they have, you know, they have pretty sophisticated operations. You know, they have very large state of the art mills in, in British Columbia. You know, so they're taking some of their know how uh, to the South. I mean, certainly cutting a, you know, a southern yellow pine log is, is a lot different than SPF and, you know, Doug Fur. So I, I'm not going to pretend I'm Mr. Millman here that, that understands how that works, but it's not, it's not the same type of operation. But I think from an opportunity perspective, it was kind of a necessity for them to make that move. And I think as, you know, now that there's this kind of signal that demand is picking up in the housing industry and not only housing, repair and modeling is a huge source of demand for, for softwood lumber, it's actually a bigger end use category than new oh, wow. construction. Interesting. So now that that's been picking up, other you know other other players in the market who operate sawmills are, are jumping in. In terms of the, the private equity angle, I don't really have a good answer for that one. I'm probably not as strong in the finance side, but you know it's certainly uh, there's a lot of publicly traded you know sawmill companies that are that are jumping into the fray here in the south. Got it. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor. Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, explaining more about their platform. When we started to look under the hood of these real estate investment managers, that were telling us about their problems, one of the things that we identified was that kind of the operating system of record for managing a lot of the most important information was still spreadsheets. They have never been designed to be a system of record, right? And, and when, we, when we started looking at kind of why real estate reporting was the way that it was, what we found is that spreadsheets were being used as a system of record. And the problem that that created was it makes it really hard to take this information, get the information out of spreadsheets and get it into the hands of the people who need it the most, which are your investors. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. All right, let's talk about risk for a bit. Allie, let's just kind of start with you like, all right, all this has happened. The traditional way that, you know, home builders bought lumber was they went to their their lumber vendor and they put in their order and it seemed like the vendor took on all the risk. Now there's probably been people that have been crushed because of that risk. So let's just talk about risk and we'll go from homes to sawmills to trading. Like, 
How is risk going to reorient itself around the industry going forward? And, and like, what do you expect home builders to be doing that maybe they haven't been doing in the past? And Stinson asks smart questions along the way that you know how to ask in this kind of category. I, I gotcha. Ali, have you seen, uh, this is something I was excited to talk to you about. A cha- it would be fairly recent, like within the last quarter, how home builders are getting priced as far as fixed pricing, price time of shipment. And are they seeing a change in how their suppliers are managing the price risk? So what I've heard from the purchasing agents, and I will be completely transparent that I'm not in the conversations with the purchasing teams on a regular basis. So this is me kind of parroting a few things that I've heard. But um, what I've heard is they haven't seen any impact of, and I know it's the futures market, they haven't seen any change on, on what they're able to buy today. The pricing is becoming even more unstable for them. They really just don't have a sense of it. And that's really stressing everyone out. Um, from a builder's perspective on the risks, some of them are warehousing lumber because at least they have a sense of what the costs are going to be when they buy them. What I've heard is it feels like they have a far less grasp in the the what they used to be able to buy. I think it was whatever, how many um, months it was. They, they don't have that anymore. There's just like what you right now is what you're what you're paying. And it seems like that's a lot. That yeah, that's really interesting, and it's kind of what I thought would be a natural progression because before uh, home builders would get sixty to ninety day like quarterly price like this is your price the entire quarter, and we'll ship it when you need it. And if you've done that the last twelve months effectively, you've you've lost money if you're a vendor. So it's it's really interesting to hear that they're actually owning wood and warehousing it. Um, and I I personally think they're going to be forced to to become much more in tune with the lumber market than they have in the past because no one wants to lock in prices or overpromise and overcommit. So have you found that the different size builders or are all builders kind of giving that same feedback? The, the one caveat is the biggest builders are going to get the best service. And like you said, they're on allocation. They're going to get the most allocations. Are they also kind of feeling some pushback on, on, on how they're forecasting prices through their vendor? Well, and it's a good point that you brought up the different size of the builders too, because it's not, if you, it's definitely not the privates that are able to warehouse some of the lumber. It's going to be the bigger guys that are going to actually have that space and they're going to be able to move forward with that. We do talk to privates as much as we talk to publics. And I wouldn't say that it was like, oh, wow, that's a discernible difference, like a huge difference between the, the two. Um, I think you're right that probably the publics for everything, that, that includes the electronics, um, the, the framers, the, the window suppliers, all of them are going to give the publics the, the better deal, the, the better access. But I wouldn't say it's been, wow, that's obvious that it's public or privates. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's just such a significant change in how lumber's traded and how risk is transferred in the supply chain. Dustin, as a trader, mills never want to lock in three month pricing or six month or twelve months. Like they just want to sell four week clips, and if they sell beyond that, well, what if prices are higher and I locked it in eight weeks ago? Shame on me. Do you, because home builders on one end where their their world's turning upside down from a risk perspective, and sawmills are on the other. What are they saying about risk management, hedging, uh, forecasting, and and quote unquote taking advantage of these historically high prices? What's kind of the narrative out of the mills? You, you know, 
I don't really hear a lot of sort of changes in approach in terms of hedging or, you, you know, you're right, the industry historically has kind of just kind of rolled with the cash market and, and not really done a lot of hedging. I mean, certainly, you know, I know it raised a few eyebrows. I think the last quarterly earnings, you know, you, you did see some some of the, the major publicly traded companies that, you know, sawmillers that, that did have some hedging positions that they obviously... Uh, sort of kind of hurt their earnings to, to some degree. I mean, they still had good earnings in my view, but I'm not sure that, you know, I, I really don't know if there's there's been a mindset change there from a, a risk management perspective. I mean, it, it would be highly disciplined for all of a sudden, I don't know if that's the right word, but it would be weird for the greedy side of this cycle to be like, we should manage our risk and well, protect the downside. I, I mean, the industry has had, such a tough go, right? And I know it's, you know, this is not meant to be a sob story for sawmills because I know everyone probably listening to this is saying, hey, these guys are making a ton of money. But realistically, the last, you know, 10, 15 years have been a really tough go for the industry outside of, say, 2017, 2018, where there was a good little price run there. Um, you know, prices are historically low on an inflation adjusted basis for, for lumber. So, you know, I think. You know, for some of them, I think they just see this as like, "Hey, this is about time that we're we're finally making money in the cash market. Why why would we, you know, try and you know go hedge ourselves out of this here?" You know, that said, we're at a point here where you know, fifteen hundred, sixteen hundred, seventeen hundred dollar per thousand wood. I mean, that's clearly not going to be sustained, right? So you would think there would be a point where mills would say, "Well, let's kind of." you know, sell ourselves out a few quarters out here and, and take advantage of this and, and maybe manage our risk. Um, and I think, you know, some may do that, but I don't know, the industry has historically not gone that way. I, I wouldn't expect them to change overnight. Yeah. That, and that's, I, I think the, the same thing from their mindset. I mean, they're, they're just, they say on market, we're just always on market every day, every week. And it feels like the stock market, which I don't, you know, I'm not a stock market trader, but they get penalized for hedging on an up market and then they don't hedge and the market rolls over and they get penalized again. So none of them. So that's just like, just don't hedge at all, which I don't think is wrong. You either need to hedge all the time or don't hedge at all because of that. It, and part of the consolidation of the industry, there's so much risk. The mills effectively don't take any price risk. They're just selling on the market. Home builders have been spoiled up to this point of getting real nice fixed pricing. And then all of us in the middle have tried to figure out who's going to offer the fixed price. Cause someone, someone's on the other side of that home builder who has 90 day pricing and it's not the sawmill we just established. So it's, it's the, the pro dealers, the lumber yards, like builders, first source, 84 lumber, Carter lumber, and they commit to home builders traditionally 90 day pricing and they can at most have 45 days of inventory on the ground as a company. So they're naked the second half of that commitment. And their guess is, you know, sometimes they'll lose money on the second half. Sometimes they'll make money. But they definitely price that that first tranche of inventory is profitable. And then they kind of wing it the second half. And you can imagine what what that's done. That model has done, again, for like 12 months. We've been going straight up and more acutely so recently. and when Builders First Source bought BMC, that to me, Ali, eliminated options for these big builders. Like the big public builders, there there are not very many 
lumber yards that can service them in the way they need to be serviced. They need big, giant lumber yards like Builders First Source to face D.R. Horton. And this is me just guessing, just understanding how traders and markets work. D.R. Horton would say, hey, BFS, give us a 90-day price. And BFS internally is bullish, so they're going to keep their price on the higher side. And DR, DR Horton says, nah, let me go shop this to BMC. And BMC is like, we got a chance to get DR Horton. Let's undercut everyone. Maybe we'll make money, but we got all this market share with the new customer. Well, now there's one less large supplier option for the builder to go to. So I, I just have been suspecting that that risk transfer, they're going to put more risk on the home builders. And I don't think they're prepared for it. I don't know how material of a difference that will make. But if, if you know, if they're getting two week pricing or seven day, this price is only good for seven days, uh, they're going to have to be lumber experts, which they just haven't had to have that expertise in this cycle, at least. And I think so I, it's going to be an interesting dynamic. Go ahead. It, no, yeah, no. And I think kind of one thing that's been taken for granted, and it's not just home builders, it's, you know, industrial packaging buyers of lumber. I think the assumption has always been lumber is an abundant cheap commodity. And so why would I spend time managing risk on something that is, again, is abundant and cheap, right? And I think, you know, one thing we've been telling clients over the last few years is that, and this is even pre-COVID, that we've, we've seen that, and some of this reflects some of this, this consolidation of uh, that we're seeing at the wholesale and, and sort of uh, pro-dealer level in the industry, We've seen that the the inventory on hand relative to demand has been dropping over the years. And some of that, I think, is this sort of idea of just-in-time delivery and let's free up working capital and, uh, you know, kind of more professionally sort of managed operations. And I think, you know, clearly that's kind of set us up for volatility in the market. And, you know, we didn't see it really in 2019, which, you know, but it's, you know, reared its ugly head in 2020 in a big way with this kind of black swan event with COVID. So that is kind of how we've set ourselves up for this, this industry volatility going forward. And I want to take that risk discussion and bring it a different direction for the builders too. And it was Chris's, one of your original questions was about what's, what are the builders going to do if the futures come true and, and lumber costs go down a little bit in the future? Are builders going to just adjust that? Or are they going to have those nice... Um, you know, fat margins. And one of the things that you have to think about too, is if we're talking about how builders have sold so many homes that are not yet started, and then all of a sudden, let's just say lumber prices come down and all of a sudden the builder can build it cheaper, they can't drop their price because they have so many people in backlog that have paid for that top line price that they can't adjust it down. The risk that poses goes back to the price ceiling though, because they're pushing up the prices to account for how their costs have gone up so much today so do you try to adjust? They're not going to drop their prices. I think it would take a lot, a lot of different steps for builders to have to adjust their prices. But that's a risk that they're then handling is how do consumers continue to react to the higher prices? And how do you consider the people that have already put in a contract and you want to make sure they close? Because to Stinson's earlier point, they're building these homes and they don't want to take on the risk that that home gets built and there's not a buyer sitting there too. Yeah, I was just in El Paso and I talked to a home builder that has 1,200 homes. Uh, he's just starting a new community. All 1,200 are pre-sold. He hadn't started one of them yet. So that was interesting. Allie, can you just speak a little bit more to major publics versus maybe your smaller regional builder that builds maybe a few hundred homes a year? Like, is this just a short-term thing and, and competition will remain? Or are there any long-lasting effects on how the majors or how the smaller companies will be able to compete against the majors? 
Yeah. And I, again, I won't be able to answer it specifically to lumber, but just in the yeah. overall marketplace, what we're seeing is that the, the publics are volume, volume, volume and backfill the lot supply and pay what you need to for, for land prices. And the phrase that I've heard is that um, generally it's the publics that can pay quote unquote stupid land prices. So they can go out and they need to backfill. So they're going to drive up those land prices. If you're a private, it's a lot harder for you to be as competitive. And so we have had conversations with a lot of the publics of, hey, we're going to go into a new market or, hey, we want to find a builder that we want to acquire so we can get foothold in a different market. And so we're seeing a lot of consolidation or at least discussion of consolidation, because right now to to be competitive, you do really need to be one of the big guys. Going back to the conversations too, it's not only your access to lots, it's your access to labor. They want to work with you because you're going to have more developments and you're going to have more job stability. And it goes back to just every, I mean, getting access to bricks, getting access to electrical wire, to cabinets. If you have scale, you're in a better position. And that's that's true in the lumber supply chain as a whole as well. Because there's so much scarcity, if you're the biggest, you get first look. And you know, you, you, you fight it out from there, but so the scale has such huge advantages in these markets. Well, and these, these, go ahead. Yeah, no. And I was just going to say, Stinson, the way we've kind of seen that too with lumber, that's in, in this sort of channel shifting from the traditional supply chain, the wholesaler distributor to the home depots and the lows of the world, right? The sort of big box stores and, you know, they take priority for the mills uh, in a lot of, not all cases, but a lot of cases, you know, they, they tend to pay more, they have huge volumes. And uh, that's kind of a twist that's also been added in here to this whole supply chain story. Um, and it's it's kind of left the, the, you know, the traditional part of the supply chain for home builders and, you know, large contractors in a tough spot here. So yeah, that's, that's such a good point that, that uh, I don't think outsiders understand. Lowe's and Home Depot and Menards, I guess it was one, two, and three, are massive, and they'll go directly to the mill. They'll have these contracts, and the mill likes it because they just got one counterparty, and they can just lay off all the their their production. It's it's, it's effectively their way of hedging. They they're not locking in price, uh, but they're locking in volumes. And the last thing the mill wants is to accumulate inventory and not be able to sell it. And that's when they get uh, too much inventory, at least. That's when they get in trouble. So having these guaranteed outlets makes them feel really comfortable that they have kind of guaranteed customers. And what's what, what the point of outsiders not maybe not understanding this is single family. If you see it on the shelf in Home Depot and you can buy it, that is that's one less bundle that a home builder, Dr. Horton, cannot buy. They 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 do not get supplied by Home Depot currently. Um, there's weird things going on with. Folks kind of going in there trying to buy and Home Depot and Lowe's. Home Depot is kind of a proxy for all big box stores, like turning down bulk sales for that are ultimately going to resale or they just won't sell the volumes. So they increase their volumes. And that, that you know, if you just say there's 100 rail cars committed to, to the U.S., 50% of that is repair and remodel. Right, Dustin? Uh, in terms of demand? Repairing a model uh, for lumber, softwood lumber demand, it's around, it's a little over 40% of demand. And compared to residential construction, new residential construction, that's like a third of demand. So let's say like 30, 33%. So a surprisingly large 
amount of Canadian production, over 40% goes to repair and remodel, which effectively is big box stores. Not all of it, but most of it. And if they increase that all, you're talking like every rail car that got committed to Lowe's is one less rail car that's going to go to supply a single family home in the way the current supply chains are structured. And so with a big bump, and I, you know, I don't know if it, they talked about it on the earnings call. I did see a quote from Lowe's that they expanded their vendor base to go find more inventory of lumber. Uh, that that has really pinched the single family home supply chain because they're different. The supply chain that that you and I go walk into Home Depot to to build a chicken coop, that's like less wood available to go build homes. So it, it's been a really interesting dynamic this year. Yeah, and I think the the key here too is. Normally, if production was able to expand right, no big deal. If, if the, the box stores, which had a, they had a banner year in terms of lumber and panel sales last year with all the DIY activity and the stimulus checks, um, and they stocked 2021 accordingly, if we had normal production conditions where we weren't constrained from a labor perspective and you know we had a little extra spare capacity, no big deal. But given all the supply chain chaos and you know some of the long-term structural issues for lumber, that's been a problem to Stinson's point for the wholesale pro dealer channel uh, for sure for for acquiring wood, and that's again been problematic for your your home builders, uh, and it's showing up in what the market price is for wood. I was going to say, well, first, Stinson, you're speaking my language because the first time I ever built a home was building my chicken coop back in Ohio <laughs> for, my, for my chickens. But all of that to say, I wanted to stick on the theme real quick on when you were saying what the outsiders don't know for the industry. And I think one of the the most important things, and I know um, we're all connected on Twitter, so you guys see me share it a lot. But right now, because of all of the different capacity constraints, 93% of builders are intentionally slowing their sales. And 40% of builders said their sales had slowed from April to May. And that data is as of today. But when you go into the comments, they all say, by design, by design, we're limiting capacity or we've completely stopped. And I think as we're trying to look at, well, is there going to continue to be demand? You may start to see in the coming months, housing data actually doesn't look good and looks actually a little bit alarming probably over the next four or five months. You have to understand kind of the nuances within the home building industry that when they are facing all of these struggles, they have to adjust their strategy accordingly too. And I think that's lost if you're not in the industry. Chris, I think that's your cold open, bro. I know. That's a great intro. That was great. Yeah, earmark that one. I got it. I, it yeah, because it, 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 I said this the other day and I, I got it from you, Ali. I think I gave you credit on, uh, on Joe's show Friday. It's not bearish. I, I said it's not bullish, but it's it's not necessarily bearish. We're just kind of hitting capacity constraints, which we've hit on. And a lot of, you know, these aren't new uh, ideas that we're bringing to the public. There's just supply constraints, but the data, you're going to have some context. But the demand is, is there. And to me, a leading indicator could be if DIY business slows down. Justin has said in the past, it seasonally peaks here in the next week. That'll be more wood pushed into the traditional single family home supply chain. So we can see more capacity increases the second half of the year from a lumber perspective, purely because the repair and remodel starts to wind down. Um, so maybe that could uh, bolster some, some starts as well. Two, two questions. Are homes getting smaller and is like the engineering needs to be smaller and more efficient? Are we going to start seeing more of that as commodities, not just lumber, but continue to go up and tech? becomes more important? Like what's happening to the home that could also help kind of keep price in line? 
So are you ready for the worst answer I can give you? Yeah. So the answer is that we do have that homes are getting smaller. And that's a trend that's been happening. Really, I remember presenting back in 2017. And all we talked about was attainability, buy your land, think about density, think about what is it, what's the most efficient use of space in the home. We call it right sizing. How do you right size the home that people still love living there? It's just you're adjusting for the price. The reason I say it's the worst answer ever is that we also have this dynamic where I had said earlier, we're seeing so much demand further away from central business districts. The further away you get, the more land availability, the less need you need to have dense communities. Um, And then I'll do a third with that being said, you do still hear the conversations being things are great right now. Yes, people want work from home space, but maybe that means turning a closet into a Zoom room. Don't try to expand the footprint. Don't try to make these homes so large and so ridiculous that when interest rates go up, if prices continue to go up, people are stuck because we know the demographics are good enough to keep the demand. You now have to be really smart with the product and with the land plan so that people want to live in those communities. That's a great answer. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, certainly from a lumber perspective, this is something we've been monitoring for for years. And to Ali's point, you know, the single family home size, I think it's been dropping, I want to say since 2014, 2015. And you know, affordability has been everything for the market, right? So, you know, people have been accepting, you know, smaller sized homes. And, and frankly, we haven't been building for that entry level home uh, anyway. We've been, we've been kind of building for the upper end kind of since the fallout of the, the housing crisis. So we've, we've been underbuilding at that entry level or that mid-tier point, you know, life point for, for from a home perspective. And so, you know, that is actually, you know, when you think about lumber demand in a house, you know, a single family home uses about three times as much wood as a multifamily home, you know, from a, you know, so that's, that's a substantial difference. You know, part of that is just, there's just more wood intensity, you know, there's less steel and concrete and things like that used in a single family home. And, you know, and also single family homes are just bigger than a, an apartment, right? Or a condo. But that was kind of the drag on, on lumber demand for some time when those home sizes were dropping. Now we're at a point, not only is the share of single family homes probably going to be bumping up relative to multifamily. So that's a, a, a positive for wood demand. Home sizes are probably going to go up too, to Ali's point that there's, you know, there's more space available. It's more affordable outside the cities. And so this is this other tailwind for lumber demand going forward as, you know, presumably I think home sizes will kind of reverse course here from this downward trend we've seen, assuming sort of work from home sticks, uh, you know, going forward. And a good point on that, too, is when you look at where is a lot of the building going, we've already talked about that. We were talking Atlanta, North Carolina, Florida, Texas. Those are the markets where you do build single family detached homes and the markets where the the density is less of a discussion than if you have so many people in the Bay Area and L.A. where a lot of the buildings happening. Um, But I do want to say, too. It's, it's kind of a, like a running joke. We have an expert in Houston and he talks to us, they talk in, in lot width and like a 60 foot wide home, a, a lot is going to give you a really nice home. They're talking about 40s. 40s are still huge homes. But when you're talking about that market, you are seeing that density is impacting the home size. It is just smaller relative to that market, but still a very, very sizable home. Yeah, fi- a 50 by 125 in Fort Worth, Texas is like a... As- kind of average small lot, which you move that to New York City or San Francisco or anywhere else is just enormous. Let's just talk about multifamily for a little bit. 
I, I come from more of a multifamily world in recent years, and everybody in Texas and their mother is building a multifamily project right now. How has lumber impacted multifamily? And, you know, we've been talking a lot about single, but like, how, how does multi fit into this space? I'll, I'll just speak from a supplier's perspective. I supply a lot of uh, multifamily suppliers, I suppose. We call them jobbers. And they, you know, a developer hires basically a, like a sole source vendor that'll do the lumber, the shingles, the door packages, the windows, the concrete, everything. And lumber is like always the biggest line item. And we're talking about 90 day pricing for, for single family homes. The standard in that industry is a gross maximum price, a GMP. Uh, contract that's like 12 months long so they are under the the multifamily suppliers are under the most they're the most upside down people are because they, they like to they locked in prices 12 months ago that they're still trying to fill or six months ago or three months ago or four weeks ago like they're all upside down and you know you're trying to like forecast how high how high could prices go let's bake that in and there'll be volatilities, some dips to buy. We just haven't had the dips. We haven't, I would argue, no volatility because it just goes up. And those guys have been really stung. And I've taken a ton of calls since doing media lately from the developers who have not signed a GMP and just kind of played the lumber market effectively and not issued those lumber POs. And now the concrete's poured and they're ready for frame and they're way off sides on their budget. And there's like no relief in sight. Last point I'll make, because wooden frame multifamily, there's more stress. Uh, they, they need it on the wood. They need a particular type of wood. So they know pine is dense and then dug fir. And dug fir is their number one stud species. And that's the most expensive product on the market right now is a dug fir species stud trim. And uh, so they're, they're just in a, in a world of hurt and like, Ali was saying with single family home risk transfer, I, the same thing is going to happen to a larger extent to multifamily developers going to have to figure out how to handle lumber risk because I just don't see that business model going without any risk changes because they're getting absolutely murdered right now. The multifamily guys are, are really in a tough spot here, just given the, the lead times to get, you know, from, you know, the breaking ground to finishing, right? So, you know, much more sensitive to market risk from a, you know, a lumber perspective on top of what Stinson said, you know, I've heard from some multifamily producers, uh, uh, you know, builders that where they can now the price of lumber is such that, you know, steel studs on, you know, non load bearing walls are, are competitive now. And that's, that's being sort of substituted for, for lumber where possible, you know, going back to the, the volatility and the, the, the presumption that, you know, wood is cheap and available. I think, a lot of these multifamily producers are kind of, you know, a little bit shock and awe here. The other, the other thing I'll add too, the thing that's been remarkable, you know, from our perspective in fast markets, I mean, we kind of expected, you know, 2021 to be a pretty, you know, rough year for the multifamily segment, just given all the, the factors that play in multifamily, right? Uh, with, you know, the sort of eviction moratoriums and rent prices collapsing in the urban, you know, urban cores, uh, and you know, you look at the the most recent you know census housing starts data. Multifamily's booming, and yeah. it's really rebounded quite well. So, I mean, there's there's clearly a story there for multifamily, even in this sort of work from home migration from urban cores to the suburbs. You know, and and you know, some of the migration to the south we've talked about. 
And so, you know, that's, I mean, that's, that's a good story from a housing perspective. We need that, those affordable homes in the market. From a lumber perspective, there's not a lot of relief uh, from a demand, the demand side uh, going forward there. And I'll add, not from a, a lumber point of view, but just from a demand point of view, the first thing I would say is we have a traditional multifamily expert. And she said that she's getting, and I think this always, this always surprised me that she even said this, but that they're getting commissioned for studies to do multifamily communities in close to downtown New York. So as much as we say the city's dead, she's still really busy getting some of these deals that are in close to urban locations. But second to that, and I think an asset class that's probably the, the most popular right now is that single family built for rent. And so that isn't going to look like an attached product. But I would say when you're talking about competition for lots, competition for land, competition for lumber, competition for trades, you now have just huge piles of money funding into that, builders going into that, companies that are um, getting created just to enter the single family built for rent space. And that's then going to compete with some of the multifamily projects that are going up, but also some of the for sale as well. That is such a good point. We own a piece of land here in Fort Worth on 20 acres, and I've never met an SFR developer really in my whole career. And we put that piece of land on the market. And the only groups we've talked to over the last 12 months are SFR developers. And, you know, Graystar, all the big boys are starting an SFR uh, fund. A lot of people are leaving like a group left David Weekly, and that's all they're going to focus on. A lot of spinouts. It's been the hottest thing that, that we've heard. So that's a, a great point. Kind of two more topics, and then I'll let you guys get back to your your lives. Um, okay, so when big things like this happen, opportunity happens. Um, I want to talk about just kind of any efficiency or tech that we might see going forward. And then I also wanted to just talk about the international landscape with countries like you know China and Russia and how America can use its influence to kind of make sure that we don't see all the lumber go everywhere else or we can create better deals going forward. But let's just start on kind of the tech and efficiency side. Are there things like you had mentioned, um, Dustin, even lasers that are cutting wood in uh, more efficiently? Like, how do we get more efficient in home building, in lumber producing and trading, all the above? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I can kick it off and start it from a sawmill perspective and then talk maybe a little bit on the demand side too. And, you know, Stinson and Allie can jump in. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think you're already seeing a lot of this uh, happening, you know, from from a supply perspective. There's there's tons of capital being invested in 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 sawmills, particularly in the south, just because that's where again the incremental fiber is. But you know, one thing that is you know I've talked about is this labor shortage, right? So you know, we, we can't really ramp up capacity uh, because you know a lot of these sawmills are in rural markets. It's hard to attract talent there. This has been an issue even pre-COVID. So any kind of you know, greenfield investment or, you know, investment that can free up bodies to add a shift or not be as dependent on labor, that's going to be huge for the market from a, from a production standpoint and productivity. Uh, again, these sort of auto graders, you know, that frees up a lot of bodies, you know, instead of having someone visually grade, you know, every stick of lumber that comes across the line, that's, that's a huge, you know, jump in productivity right there. You know, I think there's, there's a lot of investment, again, in optimizing you know, logs, things like that. That's nothing new. It's just, there's a lot of, especially in the South, a lot of older, smaller mills that don't have that kind of technology. So, you know, that's going to be added in there over time. Again, we've had this, again, this cash bonanza, the publicly traded companies and the major players in the market are, are you know, a lot of it, again, is going back to investors, but some of that too is going in and being reinvested into their mills to, to produce, a, you know, a higher quality product and, 
and, you know, sort of in, in expand outputs to some degree. You know, so I think, you know, technology there is, is kind of chugging along. Uh, and then from a demand perspective, you know, there's a lot going on uh, with obviously panelization, offsite construction, uh, you know, manufactured homes has never been a huge thing in North America, but rest of the world that that kind of has been, you know, how homes are built. And you what, know, what is, sorry, what what is panelization? Are those, are those wall panels that are put together offsite? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, especially I think that's probably bigger for multifamily, right? Uh, you know, especially at least up here in the, the Northeast, that's kind of, you know, bigger for a lot of the stick frame, you know, sort of, I guess, you know, concrete podium, four or five stories on top of that. But, you know, I think there's efficiency gains there, right? If we're talking about high priced, you know, lumber going forward, um, there's going to be pressures from the industry to, to economize and, and cut their wood usage, right? So I do think from, from a builder perspective, you know, the big thing that you hear about right now is, again, this sort of component manufacturing, offsite trust manufacturing. That's kind of low-hanging fruit that, again, your, your bigger kind of pro dealers or distributor kind of hybrids are doing a lot of that to help your home builders. You know, they, again, you know, Stinson talked about Southern Yellow Pine. It kind of needs to be in a controlled environment. So that's how they're kind of taking advantage of that material in those sort of contexts. Um, and I think, you know, that can cut out waste that can cut, cut down, you know, the, 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 you know, the price of framing. So you're seeing a lot of that sort of thing, but I'm curious, Ali and Stinson, what you guys are seeing. We did a white paper. So I don't think the idea of trying to build a home in some kind of prefab is necessarily uh, new because of COVID and because the lumber costs have gone up. It's just the builders are maybe putting a little bit more attention into it, but back in, it was 2017, I did a white paper on, there was this interesting period where a lot of Japanese companies came in and bought up uh, and did joint ventures with builders in the US. And as we were looking at that, we were like, well, in Japan, the majority of homes already built prefab. And so back in, it was 2017 or 2015, we were saying, okay, well, we start to think that maybe they're going to bring those efficiencies over here to the US and maybe that's going to really transform the market. And here we are, however many years later, I can't remember when I wrote it, five years, let's say five years later, where we still haven't really seen that happen. And in that white paper, I reached out to different companies and I was like, why is this not happening? Because the joke is you don't drop off the parts to build a car outside your house. So why do you build the house on the site? And the answer ended up being really obvious why it is the way it is. And one is that there's shipping costs, tremendous transportation costs. So, okay, awesome. You're going to build it in a factory and you're going to limit waste and maybe you'll be a little bit more efficient, but now you still got to get it to the property and that costs money. And that money doesn't actually help you save on building a home. So why are you going to invest in this if you're not actually going to be able to lower the average sales price? Another thing is that, okay, well, you can build it in a factory. You're going to be more efficient and you know what? You're going to save time. And that actually is a little bit of a cost savings because if you're financing it, you can get some money back on that end. But then the third is you need know-how because we have Clayton Homes and Berkshire Hathaway and they own that and they're building manufactured homes and they're so, I mean, so popular. They're doing really, really well, but they do still, I love Clayton Homes. They do still look a little bit more like a manufactured home than not. And some people just would prefer not their home not to look like that. So a company called Integra then enters the home building industry and they had started doing pre, actually, I think they ran an entire company in Europe of prefab homes. And these homes, you put in the rendering and it looks gorgeous. You would have absolutely no idea it was built in a factory. Integra is doing really well today in 
the U.S. market, but they have their own limitations. You, your production capacity, you have labor capacity the same way you would in the other markets. Plus, you're going to tell a builder, hey, I want you to change the way you build, but you're not going to save that much money. So it, it kind of goes back to a lot of the same themes is there is desire and everyone laughs that it's archaic, but give us a good solution. And right now there hasn't seemed to be a perfect solution to change the way we build. I, I know this it wasn't the initial like point of the podcast, but since I have your attention, I just have to ask this because I, I get I, I've, I think about this all the time. The Empire State Building was built. I'm kind of botching it, but I'm not totally like between 18 and 24 months. And it's built like the fortress. I mean, it's so quality and it was built quick. And then you saw like how long it took the World Trade Centers to get rebuilt. And, and people predict now if you were to redo the Empire State Building from like con concept to finished product, it could take seven or eight years. Like the time to build just keeps taking longer and longer. And the products seem to be getting cheaper and cheaper. I guess maybe my question is, is that just because a lot of government regulation and a lot of uh, policy that's been put into developing that's slowing things down? Like, why do things seem to get slower and slower? I think you probably answered your own question. Okay, that, I figured. But you're the chief economist. I, I had to see if there was another silver bullet I was <laughs> missing. Okay, fair enough. So it's it's policy and regulation, really. Okay. Yeah. Stinson, from your perspective, is there anything in, a, in an efficiency way that you look at from, from your side of the world? No. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, I, I watch it all and I everything they covered everything I, I would say. At the end of the day, I don't know anything about building. I don't know. What, I couldn't read a blueprint. Uh, I just know the prices. And if, if uh, they figure out a way to use less lumber but have the same square footage, you know, maybe there's codes and zoning they can revisit anything they can do to lighten the load to build the same home with less product. Um, but, you know, I just ultimately react to that in pricing. But no, I think they did a great job. The one thing I would say, too, is I don't know if it's 3D printing that uses concrete, but I know they use some re recycled material. There's obviously enthusiasm around 3D printing. And can that at least help alleviate some of the cost burden on the lower um, price point? But I also think one of the things we talked about at the beginning of this presentation is that even concrete is in short supply. So it's great that you maybe found a solution for lumber, but then you're running into another material that also is is bumping up against capacity issues. Yeah, I think I think it's I think there's a lot of low hanging fruit on the margin that you know they can probably squeeze out a, a percent or two of cost reduction. But I think to Ali's point, you know, a lot of the the efforts to you know that are kind of game changing technologies. There's just a lot of lead time and there, there has to be a lot of uh, buy-in from the rest of the supply chain. And it just, it hasn't really happened yet, but it is kind of remarkable when you think about, especially for residential construction, single family home, you, know, you think back a hundred years, how we were framing a house, you know, what's the difference between a hundred years and today, you know, what, okay, we've got, you know, nail guns and, you know, power saws and things like that. Right. You know, so that, that is helping, but when you look at productivity in, in, in residential construction, uh, particularly for, for single family, we haven't had a lot of productivity gains over the last century or so. And, you know, I think to Chris's point, too, I mean, there are some regulatory elements, too, but also just just how we build a home, you know, on site is hasn't evolved that that much. When you think about other industries and how they've evolved with the Internet and technology, things like that. So. Well, most of the framers are about 100 years old anyway. That's probably why there hasn't been many 
improvements. We need some young. We need some young trades trades folks in there to replace replace some of that. It was just the labor we're talking about. But, yeah. All that, right, go ahead, Chris. I'm that, sorry. No, that's that's blue collar labor across the board needs to become sexy and cool again. Um, the 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 people that what they're getting paid is sexy and cool, but people seem to still want to be you know, like a social media manager or something coming out of college than, than a plumber. But I think that'll change. Okay, one question before we move to international. You were talking about older mills in the South that are old and kind of defunct. I'm a value I'm a value add real estate kind of guy. So the immediate thing I thought about was, are there opportunities to buy up these older mills and, and add technology and all this? Or do you have to kind of start from scratch? It, well, it depends. I think, you know, um, I think there are, there are probably assets out there that are attractive. You know, when, when I talk to, you know, some of the, the major sawmillers in North America, you know, I think the general consensus is, you know, the, the best assets have been picked up. And, you know, you know, obviously when lumber prices go up, the valuations on the sawmills go up a lot too. <laughs> so right now, you know, with these record prices, some of these, you know, older sawmills have, you know, there's pretty high asking prices. And I think that's kind of a turnoff for potential investors, just looking at what the, the, the capital investment would be. So to some extent, that is pushing some to greenfield. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind, too, that investment, you know, I, I talked earlier about, you know, from a financial perspective, it's a relatively nominal investment for a greenfield mill, or, you know, if you're adding CapEx, you know, whatever, kiln drying capacity, or you're, you know, you're redoing the front end of the mill, whatever, the log sorting operation, whatever it may be. Um, but there's other considerations too. I talked about the labor issue. That's been an ongoing issue in, you know, rural parts of America for a while. You know, these sawmills, you know, by their very nature are out in kind of rural parts of, you know, the, the country where the logs are, right? So, you, you know, sawmill, you know, generally the logs kind of travel, you know, less than 100 miles from the mill. So they got to be close to the logs to be viable. So labor's been a constant issue. Uh, you know, some of these mills have you know twenty, thirty percent turnover annually uh, of you know kind of the, the the grunt kind of blue collar labor that that mans the operations. So it's not only a matter of finding the logs; it's planning out. Okay, how are we going to source labor consistently? What's the supply chain look like? What's our route to market? Um, and also, you know, there's there's parts of you know the South in particular that. The log baskets are getting more competitive as there are mills being added or mills are adding capacity. You know, right now, the, the kind of the hot state where a lot of investment is going in is Mississippi. And that's because, you know, I think the relative stumpage prices are not quite as high as some of the other more, you know, central or eastern, you know, southeastern uh, sort of markets where there's a lot of mills that have been added. Um, so there's just a lot of planning and logistics uh, beyond just sort of the, the finance aspect. You know, but I do think I do think you know people are looking at at some of those assets in the South right now, and and, and you know there's going to be probably more acquisitions made uh, over the next year or two. And I would say too, you look at what Canfor has done. Uh, you know, they're the second biggest lumber producer in North America. They've actually gone offshore for their acquisitions, uh, and I think part of that is they have an international business. They export offshore, so you know they they acquired some mills in uh, in sort of in Sweden and. Uh, the Nordics. And so for them, that, that made a lot of sense. And I'm, I'm guessing the valuations of the sawmills are not nearly as, you know, sky high as we see in the South. So uh, you're going to see more M&A, but I think it's the quality of assets are probably not quite what they were, say, you know, four or five years ago. So 
All right. Does all of the lumber that we use in America come from North America? Are we pulling in internationally? And on the flip side, are other uh, countries pulling out of America, uh, North America and using our lumber? Sure. So just for listeners, kind of a rough breakdown. You know, in, in the U.S., we consumed last year about 52 billion board feet of lumber. You know, and that grew, oh, by, I think grew about, you know, six, seven percent year over year, something like that. And of that, about, you know, a little over a quarter comes from Canada. So that's imported from Canada. Uh, and that's mostly sort of SPF, but there's also dug for another material too. But, you know, SPF is sort of the big, you know, commodity that comes out of there. I'll, most of the rest of the volume that we consume is domestic. So it's Southern Yellow Pine, or it comes from the Pacific Northwest. There's some softwood lumber in the Midwest and the, the U.S. Northeast uh, as well. But, you know, those are kind of generally the producing regions. Uh, traditionally, the North American market has kind of been, and when I say North American, I'm talking mainly U.S. and Canada, it's kind of pretty insulated. That You know, it's it meets its own demand uh, with, with domestic production. But we have seen more offshore lumber coming into the U.S. to kind of fill the void of some of this loss of capacity that we've seen in, in Western Canada. And it's mainly uh, from Europe in terms of at least what's dimension grade lumber for framing. Uh, it comes from mainly the Nordic countries or it comes from Central Central Europe. You're seeing huge you know, volume growth, you know, uh, you know, 20, 30 percent, you know, 40 percent growth year over year. Huge, you know, huge volumes. But it's still small, you know. The, the offshore imports, you know, outside of Canada that come into the U.S. only account for about, you know, three to four percent of demand right now. So it's still a small piece of the puzzle, uh, but it is helping alleviate some of the supply shortages to some degree. Uh, and you know, the U.S. and Canada do export lumber as well. Uh, you know, the U.S. exports have been kind of dropping since I want to say 2018 when sort of the trade war kicked off. See a lot, saw a lot of sort of lumber lose share in China with some of the duties that were put in place. So some of that volume has to go elsewhere in the in the, the export market globally, or some of it has pivoted into to the domestic market. And then the, the Canadian producers, especially out of British Columbia, have a pretty big export presence offshore too, particularly in China and Japan, but you know, all over the world mainly. But those are the two big consuming markets. You know, I think we're out of Canada, outside of the U.S., you're talking about a little less than two billion board feet of exports. You know, and that material varies. Some of that is high grade material that goes to Japan. It's, it's sort of they call J grade lumber. It's a little bit different than what you know. Sort of some of the the more sort of average lower grade material that comes to the U.S. market. And then China is kind of a mixed bag, but there's a lot of kind of more low grade industrial material that goes there too. So there are exports that go offshore, but you know, when you think about the Canadian producers, 50% of their production goes to the U.S. So the lion's share of their business is dependent on the U.S., you know, to kind of break it down a little bit. What what percentage, what percentage would you say goes to China? Oh, Canadians? Uh, I would have to take a look. Um, it's probably, again, don't quote me on this. I'd have to go go see. I think it's around, I want to say 300 to 400 million board feet, but I can double check that. So, you know, probably around 20, 20%, 20, 25%, something like that. So, and then how, how much, you may not know, um, but it stays in Canada, Canada producers yeah. can sell it to Canada, cons Canadian consumers. Yeah. The Canadian market's pretty big. So again, I said, 
you know, uh, the U.S. is around 52 billion board feet. Canada consumes, you know, between eight and 10 billion board feet annually. So it's, you know, it's a pretty big consumer, but not the behemoth that is, you know, the U.S. market with, you know, single family construction dominating, you know, the residential market. So, you know, so there's a good amount of volume that comes that that stays, especially the Eastern Canadian producers. They focus a lot on, you know, the Toronto market, Montreal, you know, kind of those big markets there. So. How much lumber does this Canadian do the Canadians produce on a board footage perspective? Uh, it's 30 billion. No, I think it's, uh, I think it's, a, let me just think off the top of my head here. It's about, I think it's closer to 25 billion board feet. This is quiz time here. I'm going to have to go check my, check my answers, but I think it's around 25 billion board feet. So. All right. That, that's it. I just, you know, they, they produce 25 billion. The U.S. uses 52 billion. Um, not all, not all of that billion board feet is going into homes. It's decking and industrial and whatever, but you know, there's room for some offshore sales to pivot back to, to the U S I think, but you know, will it make a material difference? I don't know. Well, I think this is going to come off probably very uneducated because I don't know your space the same way you guys do, but I wanted to play contrarian and I just wanted to feel out, is there an environment where three years from now we're oversupplied of the mills have really ramped up outside of the U.S. They've ramped up. Housing hasn't followed the path that everyone thought it would. And, you know, we're not hitting 2 million starts a year. And and now you've, you've made all these big investments and now we are where we are. Is there you're, any chance that plays out? You're really trying to get Stinson and I to fight here, aren't you? Yeah, <laughs> we're I'm gonna, you're I'm really gonna trying to pick punch. a fight here. So... <laughs> Go no, okay. All right. All right. All right. I, you know, I don't, I mean, yeah, if, if, if housing doesn't go to trend and kind of keep bumping up to this capacity ceiling, there's, there's significant downside. I've always said d- demand side is, is the only thing that can fix this. If supply could have, they would have done it at $800 per thousand board feet. If you're confident in the housing cycle and housing demand being at, at least where it's at, and maybe growing, but even if it just stagnates because of capacity, it's going to be very hard to outproduce this market, in my opinion. Yeah. And, you know, Ali, no, that's actually a great point you make. And this is some of the hesitancy for why sawmills are, are reluctant to go gangbusters with adding capacity, right? You know, right now, the lead time from breaking ground on a mill to when you start production is probably closer to 18 months. Normal conditions, it's probably between 12 to 18 months. So, you know, are you confident enough that once you start, you're going to have record prices, right? So there's that. And then also ramping up the mill takes another, again, 12 to 18 months. You know, usually they'll have, they'll start with one shift. They'll optimize the mill. They'll produce some boards. They'll, you know, they'll get the, you know, sort of the kinks out of the mill. And then once they can recruit enough people, they'll add a second shift. So, you know, you're talking about three years to realizing the full production output of the facility. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, it's, it's a relatively nominal capital investment, but you also got to be certain that there's a good return there. Now, I think the margins the mills are making right now, some of the paybacks in those investments are, you know, you're talking a few years and those mills are paid for. So I, I would say that the risk is actually, you know, reasonable given the market environment right now. Now, when you're talking about, can we have a correction in prices? You know, I think I think the supply side is going to have trouble keeping up in the short term, just given 
you know, especially this inventory situation, we're so short on inventory, these mills are going to have to run full to not only meet demand, but fill that plug that inventory gap, which is pretty big. But I do think, you know, there, there are some risks in the market, right? We've talked about with housing, I think there's a good demographic story. But if we have a cooling in the remodeling side of the market, which seems plausible with stimulus rolling off, people going outside their home and traveling again and not as much pressure to, to improve their home, right? So you have a cooling effect there. Maybe interest rates go up. Maybe home prices keep appreciating, you know, at a level where, um, you know, affordability becomes an issue. The resale market, maybe that comes back. We get some inventory there that puts less pressure on the new construction side. You know, in our view, you know, that could set up 2022 not to be a bad year for housing, but it could be kind of a flattish year if the supply chain is still a mess and housing is not going gangbusters for all these reasons I just mentioned. So you could have a situation that, you know, we think there's going to be a pricing correction that's pretty big, but the industry is going to remain volatile from a pricing perspective. So, um, you know, there's a good story for housing. So I don't think we're, we're talking going back to one, two, one, three construction, but this industry has always had a reputation to outproduce itself. And I, I'm still skeptical that we're at a point where you know, there's a situation where um, they won't be able to do that. Now, if we get housing starts, 1.8, 2 million starts every year for the next two to three years, remodeling is growing high single digits. Yeah, then forget about it. Forget about it. No, it's, it's going to be for longer, uh, baby. Yeah. <laughs> but if you have a cooling period, you know, I, I, traders don't use nuance, uh, Dustin. I, I, I'm the most nuanced trader you'll meet, and I, I barely use it. So good for you and your academic stuff. But we're higher for longer. There's no no doubt about it. All right, I, I'll I'll go with higher for higher for the next few years. Uh, I'll compromise there. So. Well, here, well, we can we can settle this once and for all. We'll all go around in 12 months. What is your prediction of the price of a thousand board feet of lumber? All oh stars, seven hundred. Oh, Allie's first. All right, Allie, you're okay, first. Don't ask me. Don't ask me. Yeah. Well, Allie, what do you think housing starts are going to be then for the, to finish this year? Yeah, that's yeah. a fair question. Our forecast is for a 13.4% increase in single family. We we do do multifamily forecasts, but I didn't bring those with me today. But we have a single family growth of 13.4%. What, 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 what would that number What would that number be for single family? 1.1. Uh, 1. 1. Uh, I think lumber next May will be uh, 800 bucks. The, like the futures price effectively will be 800 bucks. You know, Stinson, we're actually not that far off, uh, you know, for, for our view for next year. I mean, I think I could see in the summer months next year around 600 to 800 per thousand in, in the summer. Uh, you know, we're calling for the year to average for 2022 around around 600 to 650 dollars per thousand that's our best guess right now so but that's with a ton of volatility baked in <laughs> so you know there's there's there could be a big upswing and a big bounce you know in the summer months but to keep some perspective commodity prices in the long run typically are driven by production costs and again for the high cost producers in the industry you know and this is going to evolve over time this changes log cost change and exchange rates and things like that but you know, if we're at the five hundred or six hundred dollar range right now for the floor, 
you know, there's a lot of downside risk to pricing in the market in our view over the next, you know, over the next few years. But it's going to be volatile. There's 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 a lot of demand there. And again, we've got this inventory issue that's got to be resolved. So And this is a really dumb question. Like an oil, if oil drops to 30, it really isn't good for anybody but the consumer. Is there a bad range that lumber could get to where it's actually bad for the industry? Or if we go back to 400 a board foot, we're still fine. Yeah. I mean, Stinson. It, again, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of fluid. It's, it's sort of fluid, right? So, I mean, uh, certainly if you saw lumber go down to the 300 to $400 range, I think the industry, parts of the industry would suffer. And some of that too is dependent on how quickly it happens. Because if, if the price prices drop slowly, the log prices adjust. Um, and if the log prices adjust, the production costs come down and the mills can still make money. So if you're talking about a collapse in prices in the span of a few months, you know, it, you know, presumably there could be a situation next year where you have $500 lumber and there could be some mills underwater. You know, I don't think that'll, I don't think that'll be the case for long, but you know, there's, there's a lot of room in, in a commodity industry like this. That is kind of the true floor for prices. And so if you have a cooling in demand, there's a lot of room for, for prices to, to move downward. So. Yeah, I, anything below 600 is a problem for the industry, in my opinion. As a trader no, no, or the industry as a whole? <laughs> as a trader, I don't really care. Yeah. Uh, but as uh, the industry as a whole, it'll be a 2019 repeat. Lots of mill shutdowns, lots of mill curtailments because we got to below $300 per thousand because, well, Again, no nuance here, but because interest rate, mortgage rates went above 5% the second half of 2018, we effectively went through a recession in our industry. I think in housing too, just the, the, the growth was negative. And uh, it would just cause more lumber to go offline. And we just kind of repeat the cycle we're in now. Because one of the reasons prices are so high was mills shuttered capacity in 2019 because they're operating at a loss. And that break even just kind of goes up every year. Yeah. And just for perspective, you know, prices for, for lumber, for a lot of framing lumber, were in the 300 to $350 per, per thousand range, which was a huge problem for, for the Canadian mills. Uh, and this is, I don't want to get too much into the, the technical aspect here, but the, the stumpage prices in Canada, which are based on sort of a mechanical system based on the, the provincial government, was kind of lagging how fast prices fell. So these mills are getting really pinched. Uh, on their, you know, a lot of them were in the red and they had to curtail some of them closed permanently uh, or indefinitely. And so, yeah, that was really bad for the industry. And, you know, and let's be frank, there's a lumber duty too that comes into play too that also adds to these mills production costs. And so that, the Canadian mills, you know, the, that one-two punch was was really tough. You know, I think that cost floor is higher for the break-even to Stinson's point. You know, it where it is, it's it's hard to tell depending on how fast the prices fall. But you know, it's it's probably higher than that three hundred to four hundred dollar range that that we saw in two thousand nineteen. So yep. All right, I'll go around one more time. Any closing? Uh, anything you'd want to say that that uh, might be interesting? Not not to keep going on a soapbox, but if you had to say like maybe one something that uh, the general audience could think about going into the next year, if you had to leave with a closing statement, what would it be? Oh, I'll go first. I have literally nothing to say. We covered a lot of really good ground. 
it's uh, it's really been a fascinating discussion to yeah. tie in the production to the end, the end user and then the uh, supply chain in between. But, uh, you know, I just think we're higher for longer. That's my thesis, $800 or higher um, for a couple of years. So you do have something to say. I do. Well, <laughs> I start talking and I keep going. I get it. Allie? All right. Yep. So I would leave you with two thoughts. Um, the first being is watch what happens to lots over the next 12 to 18 months, because there should be some more inventory and a little bit of a, a break on the supply constraint from the builder side because of some of the land development that's going on right now. But the second thing I would say is watch perception. I'm really hyper-focused on how the media portrays what's happening in the housing market and the consumer's reaction to it. And we have heard in our data that came out today, I did see more comments of, quote unquote, buyers are worried about buying at the top and different things like that. And obviously, the bubble word is just coming up all the time. And perception, I'm not saying becomes reality necessarily. I am saying that people can get skittish and people can get a little bit anxious if they start to feel that the housing market is, is a little bit uneasy. So I think those are the two important things from my end. The, the one take home that I would convey to listeners, uh, you know, and, and, you know, Stinson and I have our back and forth here on what the, the future is for prices. But, you know, and we, we have a little bit of a different view there. But the one thing I will say is people should prepare for volatility in, in the wood products market going forward for the next few years. There are some structural aspects with the supply, long term supply situation that is going to make, you know, create some growing pains for the industry. We have these, you know, this shortage of inventory and distribution that even if demand cools, uh, you know, that's not going to be resolved overnight. And, you know, and, and, and demand, even if it cools, is going to still be fairly elevated over the next few years. So you have a, you know, just given the demographics and this work from home movement, all these factors at play, you know, the remodeling market, also, mm-hmm. all, all going to remain strong. So, you know, folks should prepare for the future of, you know, wood prices being very volatile. That's that's what was a commodity that was abundant and cheap. You know, that may not be a guarantee anymore. So um, that's something that we convey to our, our clients and our, and our readers. So hopefully that listeners can can prepare accordingly uh, for, for what's what's ahead in, in wood products. So. Y'all are the best. Uh, I echo what Stinson said. This has been more than I even could have expected. Allie, Dustin, Stinson, thank you all so much for taking a couple hours of your day to, to chat about this. This was, this was fantastic. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.